Support for this podcast comes from the Phil Smith Center for Free Enterprise at the FAU College of Business. The Phil Smith Center for Free Enterprise supports the vision and strategic plan of the College of Business to advance thought leadership in business. The center supports chaired professorships and research, educational programs for faculty members and students, distinguished visiting faculty, along with a lecture series and other educational programs focused on the principles of free enterprise and how those principles affect growth and prosperity. Learn more at business.fau.edu forward slash Phil Smith. Today, we're fortunate to have with us Dr. Terry Anderson, a professor emeritus from Montana State University, and now the Denault Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. And Terry is one of the founders, perhaps the co-founder, of an area of economics known as free market environmentalism. And I was very fortunate as a young assistant professor back in 1991 to attend a conference out in Montana where I was introduced to these ideas. And here we are nearly 30 years later, and Terry is a distinguished uh, visitor to us here at Florida Atlantic University. Welcome, Terry. Thank you, Dan. You just dated us, but that's all right. <laughs> well, uh, Dr. Anderson is, is, is a great guy. He's also the author or editor, I believe, of 39 books. And uh, as a person who hasn't written or edited one book, I must say I have just complete admiration and some, uh, some intimidation uh, from reading that. But one of those books is the ti- has the title Free Market Environmentalism. And when I first heard that title, I thought, well, this just seems contradictory. Uh, But it's really not. So, Terry, can you tell us just a little bit about that? Well, certainly it sounds contradictory to most people. Most people think the environment is uh, is ruined by free markets, uh, people who just want to earn profits while they're polluting rivers. Uh, and it's, it's as if that's their goal, to, to destroy the environment. But their goal is profits. And, and in so doing, the question is, can we harness that profit motive to environmental quality? And when my co-author Don Leal and I uh, wrote the first book in 1991, Free Market Environmentalism. We we thought it was a good idea to look for ways we could do that. Uh, an early review of the book said that the term free market environmentalism was an oxymoron and then went on to say that the authors are the moron part, which tells you just how, <laughs> how little acceptance there was for that idea then. But I think there's been a sea change in the 30 years you just talked about. It's now gone from being oxymoronic uh, to uh, something that's embraced by many environmental, environmentalists and environmental groups. Well, if I can share a little bit, uh, when I came back from that conference, you really helped shape my thinking and, and understanding of some of these issues. The idea of defining property rights better in uh, many cases and assigning those property rights and helping people or having uh, those people be held responsible uh, as property rights will in a market economy for their actions uh, is something that fundamentally shifts the way our economy works. Um, can you talk a little bit about some areas where you think free market environmentalism has really had a positive impact over these years? 
There are, are several areas that I think are are really crucial to to seeing the efficacy of this idea. I'll start with water. That's an area I've written about. I, I've written a couple of books on water markets. And uh, if, if you think about water for most people, it, coming out of the tap at least, it's cheaper than dirt. And they uh, they treat it as such. We, we have little incentive to conserve because most municipalities don't price the water. We don't have markets to trade the water. Uh, we just build another dam to store it and think we've solved the problem. Uh, but where water markets are beginning to show up more and more, especially with scarcity, uh, in the American West, for example, we see examples where environmental groups are willing to purchase water from farmers to leave it in stream rather than divert it. And we can make all the arguments we want that they shouldn't divert it, but the fact is they own the water, and until they're rewarded to change their use, they have no incentive to. Free market environmentalism is is changing that incentive, and as a result, getting water in the streams. Uh, another good example comes just in the general area of, of habitat conservation. Wildlife groups that focus on not just are there wildlife, but what does it take to have wildlife, understand habitat is the key. If we start in Africa, for example, uh, groups, sit, uh, small groups, communities that have gotten some claim of ownership to wildlife treat it very differently. They look at poachers as taking their wildlife. On the other hand, they're willing to let you or me come and hunt an elephant if we're willing to pay 50000 or or $100,000. And as a result, they get the profits, they get the meat, uh, you or I get the tusk, and some people find that just a, a horrible thing to be happening. But the bottom line is when the hunter pays that fee, it goes back into conservation. It encourages the, the villagers to prevent poaching, and what we end up with is more elephants, and that's just – evident in all the data. Kenya has no hunting whatever, and the elephant population has been in decline since that ban was put in in 1978. Uh, South Africa, Zimbabwe, Botswana all have elephant hunting, and where they do, those populations are rising. I think the data speak for themselves. Yeah, that's one of the, the great areas where understanding economics can give you some insights that are perhaps counterintuitive to what people might think. Uh, in this case, really, if you ban uh, hunting of these elephants, then no one really has the incentive to sort of take care of those elephants or watch them. Then the, the poachers may have uh, a lot easier time poaching than they will if the villagers want to protect them because they know that's part of their livelihood. Uh, let me turn to, to another example um, and ask you maybe to amplify just a little bit. As someone who grew up in the East, in Maryland, uh, when I first came out to Montana, I was just in awe. It really is the big sky country, and the trout fishing really is unbelievably good. But one of the things that struck me, in the East, if you go downstream further on a river, the, big, the river gets bigger. In the West, many times, that's not really the case. So you'd go downstream on some of these rivers, and you'll see that a river that was flowing you know, with rapids and things upstream, by the time you get 10 miles downstream, so much of the water has been pulled out to irrigate the, the farmland that 
it's not the same thing. And so then the fish and the recreational uses suffer. And so one of the points you made earlier is one of the things I learned, I think, back at that first conference, the idea that the property rights in the water were not tradable back in an earlier period. So the recreational fishermen and floaters and others who might like to use the water couldn't buy that from the farmers. In fact, the only way they could try to get water in there was to try to convince them somehow to leave it in. But And there's something that I think was called the beneficial use doctrine. Uh, some judge had written that it was inconceivable that leaving the water in the river could be a beneficial use. Not using the water could be beneficial. Is that is my recollection correct on that? Totally correct. And and if you if you think about the history of of say water use, but the true of land use as well, uh, and you go back to the late nineteenth century, and you say, well, why would you want to leave the water in the stream? It's not producing food, or it's not helping me with my mine. Uh, and if you said, well, yeah, but it'll be useful for fly fishing uh, with people decked out from the Orvis catalog, they'd say, well, what does that mean? Because that didn't exist. People weren't, weren't concerned about that. Uh, and the same with land. The, the thought of putting conservation easements on land so that it won't get plowed uh, in the 19th century would have just been <laughs> oxymoronic to be sure. Uh, but – I think what this reflects is is how not just our preferences change, and that's part of it, but as we get richer, we can afford a cleaner environment. We can afford the amenities we want. And so if you and I want to go fishing uh, and we are decked out from the Orvis catalog, we've just spent thousands of dollars on that. And paying a little bit more to get water in the stream – is is inconsequential in our in our overall uh, uh, well being, and so again because we're prosperous we can afford that and we can afford to say we we produce so much agricultural output on so little land we can afford to conserve it we don't have to plow it up and and I think we fail to understand that market economies give us prosperity and that prosperity gives us environmental quality. I wrote a, a book that was titled uh, after the Beatles song, You Have to Admit It's Getting Better. <laughs> and and then the tagline was the environment. And, and it is getting better uh, in market economies, the United States and England, most of Europe. Uh, but it, it, it's not necessarily getting better in, in China or in Russia where they don't have markets. So I, I, I think that this is just a perfect example of, of how markets have this secondary effect uh, through wealth of encouraging environmental stewardship. Yeah, and I, w- I would completely agree. And the, the data really shows that when you have more economic freedom, more free markets, you get more economic growth, you get more prosperity. And that leads to a cleaner environment, also leads to lots of other good outcomes like greater longevity, greater health, greater happiness, uh, and, and other things. One of the things I, I think is worth emphasizing, too, is that not only can you afford better uh, environmental outcomes as the economy grows and you produce more, you have greater wealth, but also markets promote harmony, if you will. They promote voluntary exchange. If you'd have a government law, if you change the law, say, and tell the farmers they don't have as much water, they have to leave it in the river, the farmers are going to protest, right? You took something from them without compensation. 
But a marketplace where the recreational fishermen, where the people who want to go river rafting down the Yellowstone pay to help keep the water in compensates the farmers. So the farmers then have an agreeable exchange. It's a voluntary exchange. And so you don't end up with the kind of uh, litigation or disharmony, if you will. So in that way, I think markets can tend to bring people together peacefully. I just like to get students to think about a transaction at the local restaurant or uh, going to the supermarket. Uh, You don't slap the person who's at the cashier because they charge you. You pay them because they provided you the goods and you're paying for what you got. And they don't slap you saying, you know, well, you should pay more. No, they say, yeah, we're making a profit. This is fine. And yet when it comes to the environment, somehow I think uh, many of us uh, who – consider ourselves environmentalists fail to see that we're asking someone else to give us a free lunch to pay for our groceries or pay for our meal. And and it isn't free. Uh, that farmer who has to give up the water to leave it in stream is giving up crops, giving up value, giving up profits. And when you say, I'm going to take your rights, and these are property rights, that farmer isn't happy. Uh, we've talked a lot about fishing here, and it's just another good example. Uh, uh, if you force people to have to open access to their land so people can walk across it to fish, all of a sudden they're not so uh, friendly to that fisherman. You knock on the door, you're polite, and ask for permission and treat that landowner like a respectable person. Uh, then all of a sudden that begins to break down. Now, you won't always get permission and maybe it's paying. I, I have to tell this story. I once wanted to go hunting on this property where I saw lots of elk and I went to the landowner and I said, uh, would you allow me to go hunting? And he said, no. And I said, well, but I'm I'm really safe and I, I promise I'll close all the gates. No. And it was pretty clear it wasn't going to happen. And so uh, a few weeks later when I knew that still the hunting would be better than any place else, I, go, I called him up and I said, what if I paid you a price? What do you have in mind? <laughs> and all of a sudden the no uh, turned into can we talk and we eventually consummated a lease. I got to hunt. I had great elk hunting. He got paid. He was happy. I was happy and we became best of friends. That's <laughs> uh, a great story. And and in, in many in varied ways, I think that's a neglected area of people don't understand with markets promoting voluntary exchange and peaceable uh, arrangements in society. Well, we, we economists use the word competition. And so what do you think of? You think of the basketball game where this team scored more points than that team, this team won, that one lost. But that's not what we get from competition in markets. Right. Both sides benefit on a voluntary exchange. Both the seller and the buyer are better off. And in your case of uh, elk hunting or in the uh, in the everyday exchanges where we go to a restaurant, as you said, and somebody serves you a, a, a sandwich or uh, a meal of some sort, it, it's absolutely great, I think, when we can bring those principles to bear on these environmental issues. Because so many times people have a a knee-jerk reaction that says, well, if there's an environmental problem, whether it's uh, you know pollution or whether it's overfishing uh, or it's you know some sort of problem along those lines, they think, well, what we need to do is regulate it. We need to pass a law. And instead, you might be better served by thinking, well, is there some other way of bringing these two, two sides together? 
And you've given one great example of this uh, in your book, one of the past books. I don't, I can't remember if it was the Audubon Society or the Nature Conservancy, Ducks Unlimited, but uh, it involved uh, preserving duck habitat, but also oil exploration and oil drilling off of Louisiana. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, it was the Audubon Society, and if if the listeners know anything about the Audubon Society, they know goal number one is more birds. Uh, and they had a private sanctuary. They owned the the land. Uh, they they owned the water around it. Uh, and there was oil development nearby. And when asked could they develop the oil, they said, no, like the landowner. Are you crazy? We produce birds, not oil. Uh, when the oil companies kept coming back and eventually offered them royalties that amounted to a couple million dollars a year, uh, they said, yeah, let's strike a deal. And they called the shots on what the drilling was like. They told them how they could drill, where they could drill, when they could drill. And they took the profits and reinvested some in that sanctuary, but in other sanctuaries. So it was totally win-win. The oil was developed and the sanctuaries were created that made for more bird habitat. So it's just another perfect example of how how cooperation, not conflict, results. But if, if you tried to say to them, well, it's an it's an energy crisis as it was at the time in the 1970s. It's it's in the national interest. It's a security interest. Open it up. They would have fought it tooth and nail and probably won because they had the property rights. Yeah, it's an interesting example. So even the most avid environmentalist is happy to support oil drilling when it's done uh, in the right way and helps. Uh, uh, promote their ultimate goal, which is more birds, right? Yeah. Let me give you another great bird example. Uh, in this case, it is the Nature Conservancy that it's involved. But migratory birds pass up through California at a time when rice fields aren't necessarily flooded. And so these uh, these water birds, shorebirds, need the water for for their migratory route. And if you go to the rice farmer and say, flood your field, that rice farmer says, well, it's not the right time. I'm not going to flood the field. It takes effort. It takes water. And and so the Nature Conservancy has created an app on a phone using crowdsourcing to identify where the birds are, when they're there. And since these are fields that just are a matter of kind of opening and closing gates to let the water in, they can call farmers. They have contracts with them. They pay them to open up the gate, flood the field when the birds are there. When the birds aren't, they go back to being dry until it's time to raise rice. So here's a case where technology is really important. I mean, the fact that we have cell phones that can can supply this information through crowdsourcing, the fact the Nature Conservancy can then put its money where its mouth is, uh, we get more bird habitat. And, and again, it's win-win. That's fantastic. It's a great example of free market environmentalism principles in action. Uh, I understand one of your latest projects now is working with and helping to understand uh, better uh, some of the arrangements with indigenous peoples. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I, I, I'm fascinated with, with the poverty on American Indian reservations, less true in some cases, the Seminole here, uh, where they have 
casinos and the casinos are in populated areas where there's a demand for them. They can make money off of them and and, and some tribes have, have done well at casinos. But if you go to the large reservations in the West, the Crow Reservation, for example, has over 2 million acres. It's bigger than Yellowstone Park. A lot of it could be fantastic wildlife habitat. Uh, it, it It's just a beautiful spot. It has a river that you fished and, and is one of the great fisheries. Ah, uh, the Bighorn. Uh, the Bighorn River, exactly. And and uh, th- and yet the reservations are poor. Uh, the wildlife habitat is poor. Uh, they typically don't take care of the wildlife. In fact, I talked to a game warden from the Crow Reservation, and he said if a four-legged animal crosses the border into our reservation, it has about 24 hours before it'll be killed. That's because you know, well, it's meat. What, what what else is there to do? On the other hand, some reservations manage those resources well. As a reservation in in uh, Arizona, uh, the White Mountain Apache, and they manage their elk herd very differently. They told the state, if there are elk on our reservation, we own them. Leave us alone. We don't want to hear from your fish and game uh, people. And they manage them. And if you want to go shoot a trophy bull elk, they welcome you with open arms. It'll cost you around twenty to twenty-five thousand dollars for a five-day hunt, but you will get a record-class bull. They allow tribal people to hunt elk as long as they are antlerless. Uh, again, the antlered ones are the ones that bring in the money. The, this provides jobs for the people who work there. Uh, their trapper, their trackers, their their cooks, their guides. And again, it's all win-win, and now their their elk population is phenomenal, and they manage it carefully. So I've, I've been interested in how these same principles of free market environmentalism can be brought to bear on reservations, not just for wildlife and not just for the environmental amenities that could be produced, but also for production itself. And and if you look back at the history of Native Americans, it's fascinating to see how well they understood, if you will, property rights and free market environmentalism. Take, for example, the tribes in the northwest uh, up in Puget Sound area. They had what were called clam gardens. Clam gardens were owned by different people, usually families, and you couldn't trespass onto them. They moved huge boulders to make more gravel and sand beds so the clams would reproduce. And all of a sudden, you had this this incentive through property rights to improve the quality of the clam beds, and, but it was because someone owned it. Uh, that that drove many of the the tribal economies, and it's why I now understand these these economies pre contact understood property rights. They understood incentives. They acted as if they were free market environmentalists and took care of the resources that they owned, and and so it it fits into this general theme of incentives matter and. Native Americans understood it well. Today, however, they really live in a world of socialism. I recently have come into a contact with a young woman from a California tribe, and she says, if you want to see socialism, just go to an Indian reservation. And the result is poverty. They depend on grants from the government. They don't ever get enough, and uh, you know they're never going to get out of that poverty. So the question is how to take these same principles and apply it, let them apply it to their lives. Very interesting stuff. 
Well, we really appreciate you being here with us, Dr. Anderson. And before you head back to the West Coast and uh, the Hoover Institution at Stanford, uh, maybe I can ask you just to describe a little bit of what life is like there. Uh, It's got to be very interesting to be surrounded by people like yourself who are really uh, thought leaders in their own particular areas. Well, two two things spring to mind in thinking about life there. One is, uh, since it is a prestigious university and there are great minds, many Nobel laureates in various fields, it's also filled with big egos. Uh, you're a dean. You know what that's like. Uh, but those big egos uh, are are deserved in the sense that, that uh, these are people who are thought leaders. Uh, what's really interesting about being at the Hoover Institution, it is certainly a bastion of conservative thought. Uh, the likes of Milton Friedman was a, a fellow there. Thomas Sowell was a fellow there, is a fellow there. Uh, George Schultz is a fellow there. These are people who are very conservative. The Hoover Tower sits in the middle of the Stanford campus, and the Stanford campus is arguably, and I think most of the faculty there would be proud to say, we are one of the more liberal campuses <laughs> in America. And they look at the Hoover Institution as this this uh, abomination that's there, and they would just as soon get rid of the Hoover Tower and all the scholars that come with it. So it's fun to, to uh, interact with that, that, uh, that kind of an environment. But I would say, back to free market environmentalism, when I've taught there and taught these ideas, the students are very receptive. Not because they've all of a sudden abandoned whatever liberal thoughts they might have had and now say, oh, I'm a Republican or a conservative. They they say, hmm, this seems like – I think you used the words in one of our earlier conversation – common sense. That's what markets are about. Well, I think that's, that's very well put. And I think when you talk about uh, unleashing the brilliance and the imagination that so many entrepreneurs have – to start thinking about real business solutions to help address environmental problems. And then if you go to the legal side and you talk to the law students about property rights and how that affects uh, not only the legal system itself but also outcomes in society, I imagine the discussions could be very, very interesting. (laughs) For sure, for sure. Well, thank you very much for being here with us today, uh, Terry. It's, it's wonderful to have you here in, in beautiful Boca Raton. And it's been a great pleasure. I've been so welcomed, and, and I always like being around students. A professor, when I was in graduate school, told me, you know, young man, and I was young then, for the rest of your life, you're around the youngest, brightest minds in the world. And those of us who get to be professors have that as a great blessing on us. To learn more about our activities and upcoming events, please see our College of Business website, business.fau.edu. Dean Gropper Presents is part of the FAU College of Business podcast network. To learn more, visit us at business.fau.edu forward slash podcasts and follow Dean Gropper on Twitter at FAU Business Dean.